Hey folks, you're listening to The Progress Report on the Harbinger Media Network. And just a quick message before we get to the show. We're one of several very awesome left-wing podcasts on Harbinger, and a new episode that I want to recommend is the latest from the fine folks at the Alberta Advantage. The team investigate the economic and political forces behind Alberta's rat-free status and explore the consequences of what this kind of ecosystem management means. And that's the kind of content you'll get at Harbinger. Rat-free, but also... Uh, a content that challenges corporate and liberal media dominance with a political point of view that you will not find anywhere else. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwachewaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory. And joining us today is Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu, a law professor with the University of Alberta, and really just a, a tremendous person and a tremendous follow on Twitter. Uh, if you're not following Ubaka, you should. <laughs> Ubaka, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Duncan. I'm happy to be here. You're too kind. Thank you for, for having me on. Well, it's I've we've chatted before, kind of on background for stories I've been working on, and you know that the reason why I reached out originally is to talk about the carding legislation that the UCP just dropped. But there has just been some like extra banana bonkers shit that we just have to talk about first, and that is the events going on at Grace Life, or as uh, some Twitter smart Twitter user has called it, Graveside Church, uh, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm appropriating that, uh, as well as uh, the Max Bernier rally that happened yesterday outside the legislature. And just a bit of context, we saw like around 300, 400 people outside of Grace Life Church uh, protesting that it was shut down. It was shut down because they obviously have repeatedly uh, not followed public health orders about capacity and masking. Uh, they, they didn't follow rules for months and they were finally shut down just a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and again, a few hundred people came out to see Max Bernier and a bunch of people rail against vaccines and, uh, you know, the, the, the general just government approach to mm-hmm. the government of Alberta's wholly inadequate approach to containing COVID-19. Right. And uh, I think we have to start off by really appreciating the Zen-like calm and dedication to de-escalation that the RCMP brought to Grace Life Church over the weekend as those protesters uh, screamed in their faces and tore down a fence. Um, You know, I I saw you were tweeting about this, especially in the context of like the broader issue of policing. And I guess my first question to Ubaka is like, why is training uh, never going to be enough? when it comes to making policing a less violent and less racist institution? Well, the, the first reason I, I think it's never going to be enough is that it's never been enough. Um, it, this is not the first time some reformer has suggested that what we need to do with policing is train police to be better. Uh, training initiatives have been tried before, and there's always this uh, assumption or claim that is made whenever police uh, does something bad, that, oh, it's because they lack training and now we need to go train them again. Uh, but that, that's that's a, a bad claim. I mean, of course, obviously, um, nobody will deny that uh, training is important for, for any profession. But there's, all, there's always sort of this, it's almost like there's a deficit in our th- thinking. 
if police, if they do something bad today, the first thing we go to is train them. Uh, and then, you know, there's all these training initiatives and, and something bad happens again. And we keep returning to that. And I think what the Grace Life situation shows is that at least when it comes to things like uh, uh, how you do crowd control, how you uh, conduct yourself as a force uh, when it comes to protests uh, and when it comes to de-escalation uh, as it relates to those protests, what we saw with Grace Life Church is just uh, a searing hypocrisy uh, in terms of how the police responded to that compared to how they responded to, say, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, which were peaceful. Uh, and and it, that tells you that, at least with respect to that, training is not the issue. They, they seem to know what to do. The problem is that they don't do it when it's certain kinds of people uh, or certain kinds of communities involved. Uh, and, you know, to put the matter very starkly, police find their training when it's white people. And if it's black, uh, indigenous, or other racialized people, they seem to forget the training and engage in this tactics, which just shows uh, fundamentally that they, as a force, as an institution, have a problem with these communities that is not a matter of training. And it's the failure to address what that deeper problem is what that broader, more systemic issue is that gets people like me really pissed when we see things like this. I mean, yes, clearly police have the capacity to, to, uh, to, to understand that de-escalation is good and that de-escalation works. Uh, they just are simply not interested in using it when it comes to uh, black and brown racialized communities. I mean, this question is a cliche at this point, but it is it is it is a cliche because it is true, right? Like, what do we think would have been the police reaction if it was black or indigenous people tearing down a fence and violating public health orders? Well, I mean, I think we have evidence of that reaction. You know, there's all these videos we see all the time posted on the internet. Uh, numerous reports that have been have been written about this. Uh, you know, the, how we've seen uh, police. Uh, intervention then lead to an escalation of what is a, a peaceful event. There's so many ways we've seen this. I, I don't think anyone who denies that there's not a stark difference in the reaction to uh, black, indigenous, and other racialized persons compared to, to white persons uh, when, when they're out and about their business, that person is just willfully blind. It is very clear that we wouldn't get the kind of reaction we saw with Grace Life Church, if uh, this was, uh, uh, you know, something that was being done by by racialized persons, if racialized persons decided to flout public health rules, the the type of enforcement that they will engage in will be vicious, uh, and they will definitely not go in there, uh, you know, arms akimbo, letting people go about their business, uh, and it's not just the police. Uh, you have to think that about the fact that the police works in an institutional context where they receive messages from the government, for example. Uh, and what we've seen coming from the provincial government uh, is a clear intent to uh, treat racialized persons as if they're the other. Uh, and when racialized persons want to uh, speak out and, and protest things that are happening to them, 
the government has unleashed legislation on them that that treats what they're doing as uh, criminal activity or public offense uh, and something that uh, they will, as we've heard uh, the, the the premier say, uh, bring down the arm of the law, the, the strong arm of the law on them. And then you see, you know, the opposite when it comes to uh, white people protesting public health uh, regulations and sensible public health regulations at that. Um, yeah, public health regulations that like suck and are not nearly enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean I, that's true, but but it is sensible in the sense that for what it's worth, right? Um, if if you're saying less less restrictions on churches, I, I, look, I am not going to stay here and say look all the public health regulations that have been put out so far. Uh, you know, I, I think for the most part they they do suck, but uh, in terms of the restrictions put on churches, if they even follow that, every little bit helps, right? I, I think the, the government has done a really poor job in terms of managing the pandemic. They've sent mixed messages. They've not, they've not been able to use whatever tools they have in their arsenal to try and put a stop to the, to the spread of uh, COVID-19 and its impact on our community. But at the same time, with respect to saying to to these churches, we place restrictions on you. We try to create a balance here. I think that, that that's actually sensible, if only they followed it, right? Um, and to not follow it, uh, to me, just seems ridiculous. It, I mean, they're facing less restrictions than many of us. You know, you know, for example, somebody who is uh, who lives alone faces more severe restrictions in terms of their movement compared to persons who can, in fact, conduct their business from uh, anywhere uh, and not within the four walls of a church. So I think even considering that these restrictions don't go as far as they could go, um, it's just been ridiculous to see uh, people try to flout them and then to see this reaction from the government where the government is, that is very, very muted and where the government is, uh, you know, not enforcing uh, the police is not reacting uh, or, you know, reacting in a way that shows, like I said before, just uh, a searing hypocrisy in terms of how they handle that compared to how they handle, uh, say, uh, uh, situations involving racialized persons. Yeah, I, Jason Kenney has created a monster here, right? He has mollycoddled and kind of, you know, treated with kid gloves, these these COVID deniers, these anti-maskers, these anti-vaxxers. And as a result, you see what we saw this weekend and what we saw on, on Monday. And I think it's worth just like, there's a bit of audio from the Max Bernier rally that I think is worth just playing to understand what we are dealing with. And, and here's what it sounds like. And the uh, just when it when they're when they're chanting about just saying no, they're talking about vaccines. Just say no, 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 And just for context, when they're talking about who they're locking up, they want to lock up Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Alberta's chief medical officer of right. health. 
that is what Jason Kenny has has created by again, you know, not by treating these people with the kids gloves that he is treating them with. It's been a long period of time with this pandemic. People are understandably fatigued. The the confusion that's coming from the way it's being managed by the government is enough to get people all riled up and get people frustrated. No side is happy. You know, we have to acknowledge that. No side is happy. And, and when I say side, I mean, you know, people who want restrictions and people who don't want restrictions. And that's understandable because the, the provincial government has done a really poor job of managing this. It's also good to make clear that people do have a right to protest public health restrictions that they see as ineffective. And that's really key. They see the public health restrictions as ineffective because the provincial government has played into that narrative by not actually, you know, taking a firm stand one way or the other in, in, a, in a bid to, I suppose, uh, not deal with the pandemic because they are trying to pander to this particular group of persons. They have now ended up uh, annoying this particular group of persons who are now protesting. The real issue, I think, is this is that when, when they then see these reactions, there's no clear enforcement from government and no clear response to people about how they are supposed to react uh, in, in this kind of context. This rally is the product of government not having a clear stance on the pandemic. And these people that are out there protesting and saying all of these things we, we can view them as, you know, okay, these are, you know, people who are obviously not into uh, public health, people who are bad people, you know, we might call them like a Trumpist and all what, you know, but at the end of the day, we really have to put the blame where the blame is. The blame is the provincial government that has done a start-stop, start-stop, start-stop thing, and ultimately has now succeeded in getting people on both sides really frustrated. And I know maybe that's not the kind of you know answer that people want to hear from someone like me, but I, I really do believe that. I think I think this lies squarely with the provincial government, and we shouldn't draw uh, a connection to 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 you know say uh, things like Cardin, and, and you know that doesn't have anything to do with this. I, I I think the police. I actually don't support the police brutalizing anyone. I think there's a hypocrisy that is inherent in the way they deal with the white people at this protest and the way they deal with racialized persons. But I don't support them beating up white people either. I, that, let me be very clear about that. I, I, I am not the well, I, I think it's. A, I think I should be clear that I don't support that either. The, the, the conversation around carding, the conversation around street checks, mm. is is one that is uh, fraught and one that police have spent a lot of time and effort trying to stage manage. Mm. And this government is doing this exact same thing. And whether or not protesters are being carded, I obviously don't think that should happen. Uh, but again. Police, people can be carted on the street or have street checked on the street for any fucking reason. So it's, it's again, I don't want it to happen to anyone. But again, you don't hear or see any reports. And it's not shocking that uh, police are not carting or street checking white people. But this is the segue into the, uh, the new legislation that just dropped mm-hmm. in regards to carding that the UCP have recently introduced. And you've, you've studied it quite closely. You've studied this issue quite closely for some time. You know, this th- I thought this was all settled months ago. The UCP claimed to have banned carding 
with some regulations. You know, they they said, oh yeah, the you can't card anymore, but street checks are good, and and so we fi- we fixed the law, and you can't do it anymore. But apparently, it wasn't clear enough, and they've introduced this new legislation. Why don't you start by uh, perhaps explaining the difference between uh, carding and street checks, and and then diving into a bit into the legislation? Sure. So, what I'm actually not going to do is, is to try and define these terms because I think that's where the problem lies. Um, so, so I think when we focus on definitions and trying to determine what the two of them mean. Uh, because what definitions do is definitions summarize a world that is not real. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to approach it more from the perspective of what those two things actually are in the lives of racialized persons. But let me explain very quickly what those two things are supposed to be. So street checks uh, is a term that captures the idea that the police can go into the community and simply observe the streets. It, it's quite literal. They can observe the streets. So they can observe things like, you know, there's a stray dog over there, and then they make a note of it. Stray dog, returned it to the owner. Uh, or, you know, we stopped somebody at a traffic light because we were running the light, and we found that the person had a gang tattoo, so we're taking a note of, of that. So, so it's just a worth observing the, of, of, of observing the streets. Now we can, we can talk about why in a society like ours we need police going around observing things like that. Uh, it goes back in history to when the police was used to, you know, f- fish out Bolsheviks and pro-Nazi people, and then it sort of evolved into sort of this idea that the police have a right to be in the street checking things. Now, what it's not uh, is the police actually responding to a possible crime. That's not the same thing. It's just, you know, routine stuff that they do where they go about checking the streets. Carding is a type of street check. It's a type of street check where the police randomly and arbitrarily stops a person and collects their personal information, right? So, so that, that, that's sort of how this is supposed to be. Now, like I said, definitions don't work for me here. The real gist of this is that when it comes to racialized persons, to black, indigenous, and other racialized persons, these two terms, the meanings merge. The only form of street check that police do with racialized persons is what we call carding. Essentially, stop them. Where they're not, they not committing a crime, they're not suspected of committing a crime, there's no reasonable basis to stop them and then collect their information and enter into a database, which leads to more policing. And, and, and so that's, that's one part of it we have to really sort of note. The second thing is, among police forces, they are not even clear on the difference between street checks and carding. What they call carding, when it became something that they couldn't say or stand behind anymore, they changed the name of that. They, they all police forces have different. It goes by different names in different in different forces. They call it by different names. Sometimes they call it a street check. They, they call it surveillance. They 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 rename it. But the idea is basically the same. When they are checking streets, they check only certain kinds of streets. So they check only certain kinds of neighborhoods. In these neighborhoods, they are not you know 
returning stray dogs to their owners, they are basically stopping people who they have no reason to stop and collecting information from them. Now, what the legislation, this bill that has been introduced does is try to play on the meaning of these words and try to create a distinction between carding, which is this random and arbitrary stop of a person uh, to collect information from them, and this idea of checking the streets just to see what's happening. But what the two things have in common is that the police don't have any basis to be doing either. Right? And one is just a subset of the other. And when it comes to the kind of communities where they actually do this and the people they do it to, it makes no difference. So let's say the police is in a neighborhood that is heavily policed uh, and they see someone walking by, uh, say the person is black or indigenous, right? And then they decide that they have reason to stop this person and that they're doing a street check for whatever reason. So Yeah, they can make up a they reason. They can make up a reason, right? It could be, you know, you looked at the officer the wrong way uh, or you're hanging around, uh, you know, a 7-Eleven, for example. Uh, now, yeah, loitering, match a description, right. they can come up with They can it. come up with anything. Yeah. Let's say that's what's happening. The minute they approach you, even before they approach you, you're no longer a free person. You're somebody who now, because of the color of your skin or because of your race, now has to deal with an officer. Now, how you respond to them can actually be the issue. So if you say to them, leave me alone, I'm just going about my business, they can interpret that as you being rude. That then leads them to find some, you know, some kind of thing that they call reasonable cause to be able to, to come after you. But even before you enter the streets, and you know, a lot of black and indigenous people can attest to this, before you even leave your house, you live in fear of being stopped by police. It doesn't matter whether it's a street check or it's carding. It is a fear you live with if you live in certain neighborhoods and certain communities uh, in the city. And that's the problem. People like to define these things like they're different. But in reality... There's no difference, and even the police do not know the difference. Madhu's legislation attempts to, you know, make the two terms seem different. Says carding is when they stop you randomly for no reason, right? Uh, And then says street checks is when they stop you to collect information for the following reasons. And the very first one is crime prevention activities. What is that? What is a crime prevention activity? Well, they suspect that this black or brown person may commit a crime in the future, so they get they have to talk to them. Right. So how is that different from carding? <laughs> you know, I mean, crime prevention activity is the most, it, it sounds like the kind of thing, you know, like people said, you, you hear minority reports, like pre-crime. You know, what is that? What is a crime prevention activity? I, and yeah, cops don't prevent crime. <laughs> I mean, that's that's right. the, the easy thing. To but but like even that. if they do, like what what has to trigger that? I mean, I think the minister needs to explain what needs to trigger a crime prevention activity. So it could be is it is it? I don't even know. I can't even find an example in my head, right? So maybe they see you and your friends gathered. Um, maybe let's even let's even sort of take an you know maybe you're smoking pot with your friends. 
uh, outside. Uh, and is that it? I mean, and it, what crime is what, what crime is at the back of it? Right? Yeah, that's legal now. Yeah, I mean, they can't even harass. Right, people they can, you can't even anything. harass people about that. What crime is about? Or maybe you know you you let's even say you're like driving a vehicle and you're kind of playing music loud, right? Um, what crime is behind that? So I, I don't understand what a crime prevention activity is, and all it does is give police so so they can actually manufacture reasons for the stop after the fact. They can manufacture reasons for the stop while dealing with you. But what is most frustrating about this is that street checks or whatever you want to call it only happens in certain communities. I would like to see people who live in the posh neighborhoods in Edmonton explain to me how many times they've seen police checking their streets. I'd also like to know whether these people think that what makes their community safe is the presence of police checking the streets. Communities are safe because people uh, have social supports, all their needs, and in, our, in the affluent communities, you know, the safety is just built in, you know, you know, and and in these communities where that are over policed, we fail to acknowledge that what we have is a failure of policy, a failure to support people. Right? Nobody is born a criminal. And the lack of social supports is what leads certain communities to have these things that we then focus on as crime. And for all the time we've been doing street checks, street checks go back a long time. For all the time we've been doing it, why have we not stopped crime? I mean, that is the hilarious thing. When you do ask for examples of how uh, street uh, street checks have prevented crime, and it's like, well, back in 1992, like their examples are so infinitesimal, especially compared to the amount of street checks that they have done over the past 20, 30 years. Like we are talking about hundreds of thousands of these uh, illegal and unconstitutional uh, interactions, in my view. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but they they certainly seem to be uh, unreasonable detention of people. And then they, they've got like, oh yeah, one time. One time it made, we stopped a crime. It was like, okay. Right. So so what? Yeah. And, and it seems like our Justice Minister, Casey Madu is, is really just introducing a legal framework so that carding can continue just as it ever did. Precisely. Uh, and th- that's what I think, you know, is the problem is that He's taking with one hand, he's giving with one hand and taking with the other. You know, he he's he's trying to get a recognition and acclaim for stopping carding. Police forces around the country have said years ago that they no longer do carding. You know, it, it's Edmonton police will tell you that you know years back they've stopped doing carding, but police the, the police believes in this thing they call street checks. Now, if you dig into street checks. Uh, police officers actually get rewarded for doing street checks, right? They, they, their, their performance, their job performance, merit, 
promotion relies on the ability to be able to log this information. Now, keep in mind, and this is, this is really important to make clear, they are not collecting information from persons who are committing a crime. That's not what this is about. They are also not collecting information from persons who are suspected of committing a crime. They are stopping and collecting information from persons who are ordinary citizens going about their business. And what they then do is engineer reasons to demarcate what they are trying to do from the thing that they said they're no longer, they're no longer going to do, which is carding. So the reasons they engineer, like I said before, is what we now have hidden under this, you know, minority report type phrases like crime prevention activities, you know, and 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 I and if you look at the statistics, I know you guys have published statistics before of who's affected by this. It is largely racialized persons. You know, white people are uh, carded sometimes too, but it is largely racialized persons. I think in, indigenous women are some like biggest category you know they harass yeah nine times more likely to be uh harassed or sorry carded than than white women right yeah we dug up these we dug up these stats with bashir mohammed a few years ago i i dug up lethbridge he dug up edmonton and yeah they're incredibly stark Mm -hmm. black and indigenous people are incredibly more likely to be carded just based on their own stats right and what's really what's really sad about this is madu has a real opportunity here the minister has a real opportunity here to actually reverse course and get a handle on this problem. And it's, it's a, I mean, for a minister who himself is racialized, his focus, I think, should be on creating a system that serves racialized persons as well as it serves the white person who lives in Glenora or Forest Heights. That's what his aim should be. It should be wanting to see the numbers of racialized persons in the criminal justice system go down. It should be wanting to see that, you know, his child and my child can walk the streets or that we can let them walk the streets without fear that we're going to get a call saying they've done something wrong. That's what he should be wanting to create. And to me, half measures like this are not nearly enough. We can get lost in the semantics of what's street, street checks and what's carding. Point of fact is, to racialized persons, there's no difference. And to the police, they don't know the goddamn difference. And, and Madhu has been justice minister since August uh, of last year. That's when he was brought in as justice minister. When he was brought in, he immediately said, uh, you know, he called the push to defund the police ridiculous. You know, he he has quotes where he's like, uh, he has said, I've had nothing but friendly encounters with the police and he has the utmost respect for officers. Uh, quote, if the justice system had been applied in a way that negatively targets minority communities, Madhu said he now has the opportunity to deal with those issues as a justice minister and solicitor general. Uh, I mean, you've been paying close attention to this and Madhu's performance for the past nine months. Is there anything that makes you believe that he has been dealing with the issue of violent racing policing since he has been brought in as justice minister? No, I am sad to say, but I think it's actually made matters worse. Um, Because it's one thing 
to to not stop police from harassing racialized persons. It's another to actually rail against uh, racialized persons who are trying to change the system and to undermine the cause for persons who are advocating for what is better treatment of racialized persons. His, his actions and words with respect to the, the Black Lives Matter movement, to the defund the police movement, are just disappointing. He doesn't seem to understand what these things uh, represent and what they mean. I, I mean, he's, he's sort of taking this law and order approach where he's bought into the notion that uh, police keep communities safe and, and that because they do, uh, they can acquire a ton of social capital, probably more social capital than any other institution in our society, and that police can spend that social capital without checks as they wish. And this is a fundamental problem. Look, being in the police is a job. It's a job that the community needs. But the police does enjoy a ton of social capital and very little accountability for that social capital. And, they, and because it's, made up, it's a human institution, they will spend freely and abuse the abundance of riches that they enjoy in the form of social capital. And as a justice minister, his job is to make sure that they do not. And as a black justice minister, it is particularly incumbent on him to ensure that they don't spend that to the detriment of people like him. That's the kind of, that when I look at him as a black person, that's what I expect of him. It's not an easy position to get into. And it's one where I know it's unfair to say, you know, look, Mado carries the burden of saving black people. But it is what it is. He's there now. And it's his job to not make matters worse. To say things like defund the police, he will not support. I don't know why he wouldn't support that. I don't know why he wouldn't support not allowing police to do the jobs that are not well-equipped to do. I don't know why he wouldn't support moving money into raising the lives of persons who are like him. You know, I, I suppose there's a point where you get to where you're able as a racialized person to insulate yourself from the things that many racialized persons face in our city. You know, it's, it's possible to get to the point where you only have pleasant interactions with police. But your singular experience is clearly not, and obviously not the experience of many in the city. And to then, you know, reason from that singular experience, to me, just shows a failure of imagination. And it's, it's, a, it's a gross disappointment in my view. You have, you know, tussled with Madhu before. Uh, you have been a, a vocal critic of him online and in your writings. 
And there was an exchange that I think is, is worth bringing up simply for how extraordinary it was, which was, you know, you, you tweeted at him about uh, Casey Madu had published a video about uh, the curriculum and you had a, a Twitter thread about this and the Twitter thread, I'll just read from the first one here. Uh, quote, the tokenization of a black MLA is evident here. It is telling that Casey Madu, the justice minister, is the one who is defending the curriculum and specifically referencing a lie about it, about how it is an anti-racist curriculum. Even more sad that he let himself be tokenized. And you kind of go on to talk about, you know, how the UCP are despicable. This despicable. Why isn't the education minister the one standing up and defending it? Um, you stand behind those statements? Of course. He's the Minister of Justice. This is not his file. Um, and it's not the first time he's being used in this way. And, you know, in, in his defense, this is something that white people actually do. I, I, I am, you know, the only black person in, in my faculty, for example. And I have faced situations where people actually sort of put on my shoulders uh, something that they feel I, I, I'm the best face for it. I faced a situation in the past, for example, uh, and I'm not going to name names here, but where, you know, someone very important in my faculty um, approached me to move a motion on something that was being sold to to immigrants and, and persons uh, who are likely to be racialized uh, students. And I rejected that. Uh, and that's kind of what I saw in Maddo's uh, actions in recording that video. It's not his file. He's not Adriana Lagrange. He's not Justin Kenny. You know, there's a, a ton of other. He's not Lila here. There are a ton of other white uh, MLAs who could have been asked to record that video. But he did it, and he focused on the 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 claim that the curriculum was anti-racist. Right, I mean it's 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 so obvious why he was made to record that video, and, and it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when the only black MLA in the caucus is being made to record a video defending something that he has no business defending, uh, and making claims that I'm pretty sure he does not actually believe himself. Anyone with a brain who reads that curic curriculum knows it's a racist curriculum. So to claim it's anti-racist is utterly ridiculous. But be that as it may, you know, he, he, he records this video. Uh, and what I would like for him to do is to actually respond by saying, this is not how it happened. I defended the curriculum for these reasons. I would have liked him to answer the charge that I, I, I made that this is not his portfolio. I don't see Tyler Chandro or, you know, uh, Adriana Lagrange defending the Cardin so-called uh, street checks bill. I don't see them speaking up about it. So I would like him to explain that. Instead, uh, he, he goes and, and uh, does a personal attack, which I suppose with um, UCP MLAs, is never too far. Is not you know it's the kind of expected reaction because um, they lack uh, sort of basic common sense and, and the and the 
they're not able to restrain themselves from from going personal, uh, even though they're in a public office and they should understand that when they're there, people are going to criticize what they what they do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just worth saying out loud what Casey Madu, he responded to you uh, and then quickly deleted the tweet, but it was, of course, captured because the internet never forgets. But here's Casey Madu's response, just so people know what the hell we're talking about. Quote, for the first and last time, I will respond to you. You represent only the interests of the entitled and triggered white leftists who have zero interests in the black community. You represent their selfish ideological and electoral interests, interests the black community gets in, unquote. Uh, congratulations. Uh, you are now uh, an entitled and triggered white leftist, or at least you represent us. Um, yeah. yeah. Welcome. Welcome to. The yeah. Show. It's, it's, it's actually, you know, it's, it's such a wild accusation. Um, it, you know, he, I don't even know what to say to that. It, it's, it's very clear that this is the only thing he has. Um, uh, and I think he, he's doing that sort of, uh, characterize me in a certain way for the benefit of of whatever audience he thinks is selling that to. Um, you know, if I if I did in fact uh, deem this as a political thing, and, and and I think that's what he's hinting at here is that for me it's political. If I deem it as a political thing, uh, I will get into politics, uh, and you know, and I'm not even a member of a political party in Alberta. Uh, you know, and I and I care about this issue because I have followed the issue closely. I've been to events in the city where members of our community talk about the experiences with Cardin. Uh, uh, you know, and these events leave you in, in tatters when you hear about people's experiences in the city. Um, when when you hear about what racialization does to someone in the city, and as somebody who has some sort of audience. I don't view this matter as political. I view it as, you know, informing people about what black people and what indigenous people and other racialized persons face in this community. I view it as necessary work, as work that we have to do as persons who have somehow managed to reach a position that most racialized persons don't reach for through no fault of theirs. I view it as a responsibility to use my voice to say these things. And even when I make claims that seem jarring and, in, to his mind, unfounded, his responsibility is to respond to those claims by setting me straight. He can't go personal or make up things like, oh, I represent white leftists. That is just, you know, I don't know what to say to that. It's ridiculous and it's silly. Um, in many ways, it doesn't even deserve comment. Uh, what he ought to do is you know, respond to it. And, and I'm happy to meet him anywhere he wants. And we can talk about it. We can talk about what kind of message he's sending when he records a video saying a curriculum that has been panned widely by everyone who's read it. A curriculum that does not in any way center racialized persons and the experiences. And one that in fact will deepen the issues that we face and that exposes our children to systems of thought that do not in any way accommodate our values and our perspectives. I'd like to see him come out and defend that and stop resorting to his usual, oh, the leftists are here. 
It's idiotic. Yeah, I mean, Madhu has a history of making outlandish claims, uh, one of which was that it was the NDP conspiring with BLM to keep him away from the mic at a Black Lives Matter rally, <laughs> um, which is preposterous on its face. Uh, I mean, you brought it up, though, so I do have to ask, do you want to run uh, against Casey Madhu in the next election? No, I do not have any interest whatsoever in entering politics. Um, in fact, okay. well, I just wanted to get that on the record because he brought it up and you brought it up. So I figured I'd ask. No, you know, and, and I should explain that, you know, once and for all, I, you know, look, one can, you know, hubris, you can sort of get a, a sense of your own self-importance and then decide to, to do things. And, I, and I've thought about this matter, you know, I, I've thought about even on the best view of it, going out there uh, to try and be part of the conversation and to try and bring about change. And, you know, as, as you start to look into it and I start to think about it, you kind of realize one thing. Politics is for persons who are politicians. Uh, and um, you have to be somebody who uh, is willing to, I suppose, um, the party line, the way we practice it uh, in Canada, you have to be willing to to sort of work with others, I suppose, on the best view of it, to achieve certain things, and you have to be able to sort of align yourself with things that may not uh, even be the things that interest you. And this is the best view of it. And I've kind of sort of decided that for me, there are fundamentally certain things that I care about right now that neither political party is paying enough attention to. It makes more sense for me to sit on the sidelines and watch their actions and point out to them that they're not paying attention to these things than to get into the fray and then be forced to shut up about the things that they don't want to talk about. And I'm, I'm saying this because I think both political parties are quite uh, guilty of ignoring many of the issues that affect racialized persons uh, in our province. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was hilarious to see the NDP outflanked on carding by the UCP of all political parties. Just they just didn't do anything for their four years in office. And then the UCP did something and this something isn't very good, but it, it, it is. They at least talked about it and they said it was bad. Um, well, well, no, I don't think the UCP actually did anything. What they've done, no, they've, no. they haven't changed anything. What they've done, actually, is try to score political points by pretending yeah. to do something. But I agree with you completely. I, I was at a carding event a few years back. Uh, when the NDP was in government. And I recall um, Desmond Cole was, in, was visiting and, and was at the University of Alberta. Yeah, we, we brought him. Right. We brought him. Yeah. <laughs> we brought him right. around to speak. Yeah, so you were, yeah. we were probably there as well. And, and at some point, he placed a call to, to the justice minister at the time. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Kathleen Gunley, I believe. Uh, yes, Kathleen Gunley. And, and uh, you know, said, look, you, you got to do something about this. And the NDP did not do anything about it. So, so I am not entering politics to be part, be part of some, you know, system that does not care deeply about the pain of racialized peoples. I don't care whether it's not caring light or not caring heavy. It's just not caring. And I'd rather sit on the sidelines and yell as loud as I can in the hopes that someone will hear and not just people in politics that, you know, the so-called allies will hear that, you know, 
people who hate black people will hear. Anyone who's listening should at least hear and understand that the journey that racialized people are taking through this province is not an easy one. And until we actually start to care about the problems that they face, we're not going to create a kind of community where we actually feel like we're doing something and we're moving ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I have no good segue into this question, but when I put out on Twitter, hey, is there anything you want to ask uh, Dr. <laughs> Ubaku uh, One of the DMs I got was about uh, a thing, a story that's been going around recently, and that is of a massive, a proposed 45% tuition increase oh, yeah. to the U of A law program. You are a professor, a law professor at the U of A, you know, I've seen Avnish Nanda, friend of the show, kind of talking this about uh, on his Twitter account. What what is uh, what is your take on this proposed forty five percent tuition increase? Oh boy. Okay, so I, I'm I'm going to be very frank about this since you know you've put the question to me. Um, uh, you know, I'm a faculty member, and I and I don't want this to be interpreted as. Uh, um, you know, disrespect for anyone or, or me, sort of like, you know, it's it's a I I, I work there, uh, so so let me try, let me attempt an answer here. Um, I got a law degree on tuition that is less than two hundred dollars. I got a PhD, and you know, through my graduate education to a PhD, I never paid more than $3,000 in tuition. It is difficult for me to accept any tuition increase as um, warranted or sensible. I, I, in fact, think education should be free. So, so I fundamentally do not support tuition increases. Um, but I do have to say that as I understand it, this is a problem that is created by how we fund post-secondary education in the province. And what's interesting about this tuition increase is that the government is making it seem as if it's not about that. They're saying, you know, make a case for it and tell us how, what value that increase is going to bring. Uh, my sense is it is not right to make students bear the burden of something that improves us as a society. Um, And I think it's going to create real issues for access to legal education. Yeah, if just the rich get to be lawyers and then you can only pay off your... Or say you're not rich and you get a you get you go through law school and you, you become a lawyer and you have this six figure fucking debt hanging around your neck. What kind of law do you think you're going to practice when you get out of law school in order to pay off that monstrously large student debt? Right. Yeah, I, I you know and I mean that's the the problem. Like I said, you know my my general personal position on this is as always been that any society that um, is what its weight in gold or whatever the expression is, should um, be educating its uh, citizens for free. 
because education brings so much value to our community and people give back when they're educated to the community in ways that, um, you know, multiply what it, whatever it is that a society put into it. It's an investment in, in the future of our society. Uh, and, you know, to, to put that burden on students is not something I support. Uh, that's not to say, you know, that there might not be reasons why the faculty uh, feels the need to increase tuition. I just don't support tuition increases personally of any kind. It's just not, mm-hmm. you know, I, like I said, it would be hypocritical for me to do so. I got a PhD on, on $3,000. <laughs> so it would be hypocritical for me to say, you know, tuition increases are a good thing. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I just don't know what the solution is, but I don't think it should be necessarily one that rests on students. No, I mean, the solution is to, you know, have a government that properly funds post-secondary institution. It doesn't force faculties to do this. Right. Uh, because the UCP have gutted, and not just the UCP, government after government here in Alberta has kind of gone after post-secondary education. And we've talked about it on this show. It, it's because, f- it's for a variety of reasons, but one of the big ones is that post-secondary students are, are, you know, they're young, they're not engaged, they're not high, they don't vote in high numbers, they're not wealthy, they're not a political constituency that has much power, and they're also just not organized. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, graduate students are simply, the student unions and uh, the student activist movement in this province is pitiful. And as a result, uh, students just continually get rolled by conservative government after conservative government, and costs are just downloaded onto them, and tuitions are raised, and Things are cut, buildings get torn down, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I remember the very first budget the UCP dropped. There's just like simply breathtaking drops in the amount of money invested in the infrastructure, like the actual buildings on campuses. Uh, You know, these buildings are just going to wither and eventually fail and have to be torn down because Mm -hmm. the governments at the time did not decide that it was worth enough money simply to like keep them standing and investing just the bare minimum of kind of maintenance and, and capital investment to keep these things standing. It, it is, it is shocking. And, you know, the student unions and the kind of the students who are out there, uh, you need better representation and you need to get organized because things like this are going to continue to happen if you don't. I, I agree completely with that, uh, uh, with all you've said. Uh, in fact, one of the things that surprised me when I moved to Canada uh, for my when I came here for my master's degree, uh, one of the things that surprised me is, uh, as you said, uh, just um, sort of a fairly muted level of student activism uh, in, in the province. It, it, it's in many ways not a thing. I went to uh, to university in a very activist culture. There was always someone with a megaphone uh, standing on some makeshift. Uh, <laughs> uh, stand uh, or podium uh, just blasting out information about what's right and wrong with the world. And, and you know, students were up in arms all the time uh, just engaging with social issues. And, and uh, you know, I, I think students uh, here don't quite appreciate how much power they have if they organize uh, and how much power they have to sort of, move, you know, change the outcome of elections, to move things in, 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 in a direction that favors them. Uh, and and I think more of that, we're going to start seeing more of that as some of these uh, sort of systemic and large-scale issues start to impact their lives in a very direct way. I think this, this tuition increase, as you, you know, rightly noted, is, is linked to levels of provincial funding. Uh, 
you know, I don't like it, but I, I don't know if there are any easy answers. Uh, you know, and I don't want to be critical of of um, anyone. I just don't know if there are any easy answers. Uh, the only thing I do know is that if I was, you know, and I'm being since you put me on the spot here, if I, I know that if I was uh, um, a student or a parent, or you know, I mean, I, I am a parent, <laughs> and my kids are going to be in school someday, and so this worries me, and and especially um, when it's something that you know um, is going to impact uh, racialized communities a, a lot more because we have. Uh, our access to legal education is already very bad, uh, and this is just going to make it worse. Yeah. Well, that's been an hour, uh, Dr. Ubaka. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, is there any way that people can follow along, any social media accounts? Is, is, I assume Twitter is your preferred social media kind of platform of choice is there any way else people can follow you uh twitter is the only social media <laughs> that, I, that i use uh so yeah social media is a um twitter is a way to uh to get a hold of me um it's true i did connect with you through a DM, yeah so yeah you need to get a hold of dr Bob. yeah i'm i'm, I'm yeah. very uh, wary of uh other means of getting in touch with me since um the incident involving people emailing me uh racist uh comments and calling my phone and whatnot so so twitter is uh since it's public at least and i I get to choose who comes in and who doesn't i think is the best way awesome well again thanks so much for coming on ubaka and if you like this podcast and you want to keep uh, hearing it and more like it um, there are a few easy things you can do to help us out one of the things is to leave a review one of those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts actually go a long way to helping people discover the podcast. And the other uh, kind of big thing you can do to help us out is you can join the nearly 500 other folks who help keep this independent media project going with monthly donations. And the one way, the easy way to do that is just to go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. There's, if you just go to the website, there's a big donate button on it. You put in your credit card and contribute $5, $10, $15 a month, whatever you can afford. We really appreciate it, Jim and I. Also, if you have any uh, notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I messed up on, things you think I need to hear about, I'm very easy to reach. You can reach me on Twitter as well. I am on Twitter entirely too much, and I am at Duncan Kinney. And you can reach me by email at duncank at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Famu Communist for the amazing theme. Thanks again to Dr. Ubaka Ugbogu for coming on the pod. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.